Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yagara people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from. And if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. It's great to be bringing you another episode of the Come Along for the Ride podcast. And I'm very happy to say we will be more regular again from here on in. The wonderful Lauren R.K. from Canada has joined the team and is doing the reaching out to guests for me in the podcast. The relief and joy that I have seeing a booking for a podcast interview come through into my emails is the best. So thank you, Lauren, for all you are doing. It is so very much appreciated. In this episode, thanks to Lauren, I speak with Dr. Sue Dyson. When I interviewed Dr. Anne Bondi from the Saddle Research Trust, she suggested I speak with Sue. And I'm so glad that we found the time to speak with her because, oh my, she is out to change the horse world in a wonderful way. She has developed a tool on how to recognise the 24 behaviours indicating pain in the ridden horse. And these are the things that a lot of vets can't find. And she is backed by all the science you could ever possibly need. I could read out all that Dr. Sue Dyson has achieved in her lifetime thus far, but it would probably take me 20 minutes just to get through it all. And I'm not exaggerating. I'll shorten it somewhat to give you an idea. Sue is a qualified vet who went on to specialise in clinical orthopaedics and lameness and poor performance in horses. Sue has been awarded fellowships, PhDs and is a founding diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. Sue has lectured internationally and published widely on equine orthopaedics and diagnostic imaging. She has published more than 310 refereed papers in scientific journals relating to lameness and diagnostic imaging in the horse. Sue is a member of the Editorial Advisory Board of the Equine Veterinary Journal, Equine Veterinary Education, and acts as a regular peer reviewer for a large, large number of journals. Sue has been a long-standing member of the Council of the British Equine Veterinary Association and is a past president. She has also been a long-standing member of the Board of the World Equine Veterinary Association and vice president. Sue has been awarded far too many prizes to list and has been made an honorary member of the SIVE in Italy, which is a Societa Italiana Veterinieri per equini. You can get the gist. Sue was also inducted into the University of Kentucky Equine Research Hall of 
fame. Sorry, any Italians listening, that was horrendous. Sue also holds the Instructors and Stable Managers Certificates of the British Horse Society and has completed at advanced level in both horse trials and show jumping, producing horses that have subsequently competed successfully at Olympic Games and World Equestrian Games. She is a former veterinary advisor to British Eventing. Sue is the veterinary advisor to the Saddle Research Trust and to Moorcroft Equine Rehabilitation Centre. And that, folks, is her CV cut down to about literally 5%. It's long and comprehensive. So as you can see, Dr. Sue Dyson is not only a vet, but she's an accomplished horsewoman who knows that to find the real issue with a horse, you must do the basic check that most vets do. Then you have to see the horse ridden to see if the rider has any biomechanical issues that are affecting the horse. Then she may even ride the horse herself to see if those issues are still present with a balanced rider on on its back. She is amazing in what she does. Sue's tool that she has created will save you money on vet visits. It will give you an educated opinion for your vet to consider, and it may even help educate your vet on how to deal with pain in horses. Now, I'm getting nothing. You know, I don't get any kickbacks for the things that I promote on this podcast. Let me tell you that right now, but I will promote this until, you know, until my time is done because, oh my God, it's going to make a change. Sue has created a tool that we as horse owners need as we know there is an issue with our horse, but no vet can find it. Well, this tool can. I hope you enjoy this talk and I really hope you can spread the word about Sue's creation as horses all over the world will honestly benefit if you do. So sit back and relax and enjoy the wonderful Dr. Sue Dyson. Dr. Sue Dyson, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And can you tell me first a little bit about what it is that you do? Um, I'm an equine veterinarian. I've specialised in lameness and poor performance throughout my career. I worked at the Animal Health Trust in Newmarket for 32 years until last year. Um, I have always been involved with clinical investigations, but have also been involved in clinically related research and uh, postgraduate teaching as well. So my view is that I keep asking questions, just don't accept what I see in front of me all the time. Okay, so I've read up a lot about you and what you've done is fascinating and it's a beautiful career. Did you start with horses? Where did it all begin for you? Well, I was a pony mad child um, who begged to start riding from a very young age. Uh, went up to the local riding school, which was about a mile away, and went was there every day. Was lucky enough to have my first pony, very young, and it just developed from there. Uh, I had a supportive mother who was not really a horse person, but was prepared to encourage me and to take me to lessons and to take me then to shows because I was very much somebody who wanted to ride not just to have fun but also to get better and to compete uh, and I was lucky enough to meet lots of different people that helped me achieve those goals. Uh, what did you compete of, in? Um, well as a child I did something of everything and then I was fortunate enough to be in the pony club team where we took part in a show jumping event at Burley three-day event and saw top class eventing and then became passionate about eventing. So my best horses, of which I've had several, um, did everything, but fundamentally were upper le- became upper level event horses. So you chose the easy road in eventing then. <laughs> I, I always watch eventers and I'm like, you are a special kind of human. It's, um, it's extraordinary what you do out there. It's amazing. I think you get confidence from the horse that you ride. I would never have believed that I would have competed at advanced level, but I was fortunate enough to produce some horses from a young age that had the talent and took me all the way, really. Mm. And even more fortunate to sell those horses and see them compete at Olympic Games and World Championships, which was a tremendous stimulus to me. Wow. Wow. That would be amazing. 
And how did they go in the Olympics? Did they shine? Um, well, the first one went to the Seoul Olympics um, just six months after I had sold him. And he jumped a clear round at cross country. It was just, it was on the television. Um, and Lucinda Green was commentating. And she said, this horse was produced by Sue Dyson from Newmarket. Oh. And I didn't know the world, but it was three o'clock in the morning our time. So I couldn't. Wow. <laughs> Very exciting. Wow. Oh, that Very would, exciting. and, and that, that really is thanks to you. Because six months is not a lot, lot of time to bring a horse up to, to that standard without all the work that you've put in for such a long time. Well done. Yeah, well, he, he was a, a very interesting horse because I bought him very cheaply because he reared. Mm -hmm. um, I did stop him rearing, but I knew exactly the circumstances under which he would rear. And I learned how to avoid those situations. So it was a fascinating part of my development as a, as a horse person, I think have that challenge and several other horses I had were similarly difficult horses so for example McGinty who was my first superstar who went to both upper level show jumping in UK and was an advanced event horse he is also a very difficult horse initially and I just learned so much from the opportunity to work with difficult horses and also the opportunity to feel what real athletes do with their bodies and how amazing it is to ride those horses. And to have had the experience of riding pain-free horses, which are real athletes, is something which I think has had a huge influence over my whole career as an equine veterinarian. And did you... Can you explain a little bit more about what the situation was for the rearing? Uh, to begin with, he would rear under any circumstance. So he wouldn't go out of the yard without rearing. You could get into the middle of a field and he would rear. Um, but I gradually overcame all those. And ultimately, the only time he would predictably rear was if he was waiting to start cross country and somebody else was finishing coming towards him. Um, oh. So you have to avoid that situation. And if you avoided that situation, then everything was fine. Oh, that's no good so interesting. To face the other way, though, in the start box, because he would just jump out from a standstill out of the start box. So you had to make sure you had a liaison with the starter such that he wouldn't attempt to start you when somebody was finishing coming towards you. Yes. Wow. And how did you, how did you work with stopping the rearing in the other situations? I think it was just being firm I used to wear a little pair of spurs all the time uh, and I think he began to progressively trust me and I think that's a huge element in training horses is that they have you have mutual respect for each other so I never did anything um, aggressive towards the horse I was just firm and persuasive Mm, just clear in what it is that you were asking and that he uh, rearing wasn't going to get him out of it. Yes, exactly. And do you had him checked and everything for, it definitely wasn't a case of any kind of pain or anything like that? Um, I did the pre-purchase examination on him myself. Yeah, because um, that's what I was thinking, because were you a vet I, at this stage? I was a vet at this stage, but there I was a um, inexperienced vet. Yeah. Um, I would not recommend that veterinarians do pre-purchase examinations until they're at least five years qualified. And I was certainly less than that at that stage, but I was confident that he did not have any underlying pain related problems. Yeah. Um, was a very sound horse. Yeah. Fantastic. So you knew it was, it was emotional and behavioral. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, interesting when the horses are that talented that they're also generally pretty clued on and, and quite intelligent so um maybe he'd uh, it was a bit of a learned behavior for him yeah I, I think that quite a lot of very good horses have little quirks and i think that if they do one thing that is abnormal behaviorally then that is probably genuinely a behavioral problem Whereas if they show multiple different behavioural abnormalities, then it is much more likely 
to reflect underlying musculoskeletal pain. Mm, that's a really good piece of information to keep on board, I think, for yeah. all past people. It's a very, very big thing, I think. I, I strongly believe that most of us learn to ride at riding schools and riding school horses are quiet individuals and a lot of them are grumpy and not very willing and I think that's because a lot of them have underlying pain related problems and we become conditioned that these behaviors are normal for horses and I don't believe they are Uh, and in fact we've proven that they're not so I think we become conditioned that horses may be unwilling may find it difficult to canter on one rein um, may be spooky uh, may have their ears back Um, may open their mouths, may lean on the bit, uh, uh, and these become to be called training problems, but I don't believe they are. I think they are all a reflection of underlying musculoskeletal pain and the horses are trying to communicate with us in some way and we just have to learn to recognise these as abnormal behaviours and investigate why they're happening. Yeah, I I agree a billion percent. And... How did this all come about for you? So you studied veterinary science first and then did you notice this? What got you into this field of of going down that clinical research? Well, I was not one of these people who knew they wanted to be a vet from a very early age. I hadn't got a clue what I wanted to do. Um, I was uh, lucky that I was fairly good at most subjects. And I went into the final two years at high school not knowing what I wanted to do and doing the subjects I liked best. And it was only partway through the uh, final year that I realised I would like to be an equine vet. So I had to do a sudden change in subjects and some crash learning. And I applied to Cambridge University and was offered a place at Cambridge University to study veterinary medicine. Uh, which was a great place to learn at. But an important thing happened before that was because I used to go for training with somebody called David Arthur, who was a dealer, a horse dealer, um, a trainer, a bit of a maverick. But he also wanted to challenge the conventional wisdom of the British Horse Society So he decided that he would uh, take the British Horse Society examinations and became a British Horse Society instructor. And he became a very influential person in my life. And it was whilst working with him during my vacations that I met a vet called um, uh, John Aliff. And he had been to America. So he was an unusual vet because he kept asking questions more than any other vet that I had seen at that stage. And he had experience of going to America. And after I had graduated, um, I too went to America, which was going to be a very formative experience. But in the meantime, two other things happened. Whilst I was competing at the Pony Club Championships, um, I was approached by a lady called Sheila Wilcox, who was the first lady to... Uh, ride at the European three-day event championships and she asked me if I wanted a job and I was just about to go to university and didn't know what to do so I asked university can I have a year off and they said oh yes of course and I thought do I really want a year off before this long uh, veterinary course so I decided not to have a year off but I did go and work for Sheila Wilcox during my university vacations which was an incredible learning experience from a very good a former rider and trainer and a great disciplinarian and a good observer. And I learned so much from her. And whilst I was there, uh, she would buy thoroughbreds that were not good racehorses and produce them as event horses. And uh, Jack Legoff, the American team trainer, came over with Bruce Davidson to ride to buy some horses. And I rode some young horses in front of them. Uh, several of which they bought. And then after I had been to university and I had been fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go to the United States to work at the University of Pennsylvania as an intern, 
within a few days of arrival, Bruce Davidson, who was then the current World Three Day Event Championship champion, came into the clinic with one of his horses. And he recognized me and said, would I like to come and ride some of his horses when I had time off? And I had thought this was going to be a year without riding. But after a few weeks, I thought, mm, I really would like to do this. So I plucked up courage and went to his yard and he embraced me. And so I was able to ride his horses and some of his top horses, which was also a phenomenal learning experience, riding other very good athletes. So this was all a kind of a very broad background to um, being an equine vet. Mm, and the, the, somebody said it once, you know, that you're only as good a rider as the amount of horses you've ridden, different horses you've ridden. Yes, uh, and I think that that's hugely true. And one of the things that happened at Cambridge University is that the initial teaching was with undergraduates who were doing, for example, physiology as their primary degree. And we had some world-class research people teaching us. And they would not just give us the facts, they would explain how those facts were derived. And that was an enormous learning experience for me, not to just accept facts at face value, but to learn how we develop that knowledge. And also to learn that knowledge is there to be challenged. We don't just stay thinking the same thing all our lives. We can get new experiences, we can find out more, and we have to change our opinions based on further experience and further knowledge. And I think this is hugely important that we continue on a learning course and by observation and documentation of what you see, you can develop clinical knowledge. And I think that's what I have been fortunate enough to do throughout my veterinary career. And I think that because I have been a rider, I have been in a position to understand what riders' problems are. I've frequently heard riders say, I can feel this, but my vet can't see it. And I, by riding those horses and also by observing, have learned better to understand what these people are trying to tell me, which I think places me in a, um, an almost unique position in terms of being able to understand what riders are saying. Definitely. If you, even just the amount of horse owners I know who say, I know there's an issue in my horse in this area and it keeps coming up you know, clear, 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 but then eventually they'll find it. And they're like, I, I don't know the anatomy, but I know there's something here and um, in this area. And, and eventually when enough investigation's done, it's there. So I agree that as a rider, you have a, a completely different awareness of a horse than you do from basic anatomy physiology on the ground. Yes. And uh, whilst I was in the United States, I also met some brilliant veterinarians who've remained friends. Um, one of them was somebody called Dan Marks, who was the American team vet for the show jumpers at that time. And he kind of took me under his wing and um, I was able to watch him work and watch him work with high level competition horses and the trainers and the riders. And all of that further developed me as a veterinarian. And Dan has remained a close friend and um, keeps challenging me in what I think. Uh, and those sorts of people in one's life, I think, are very important. Uh, you get where you get by listening to others and um, sharing some of their ideas. And that, I think, is very valuable. Definitely. Yeah, the mentors along the way. So by, so by seeing all of that and having all those experiences, that's what led you into specifically looking at the horses where you could see that there was something wrong and it wasn't behavioural, it was actually pain? Well, I, over the years, I've looked at many horses and I've always had the philosophy that if the owner tells me they've got a problem when they're riding the horse, I need to see the horse ridden. 
So even at a pre-purchase examination, I always see horses ridden. And I think I've been somewhat unusual in that respect, because I think that there are lots of horses which will show low-grade gait abnormalities in hand, which are of no relevance to their ridden performance. So for me, it is crucial to see horses ridden. I've looked at thousands of horses ridden, and I've listened to the history from thousands of owners, and there became to be a common thread of people telling me, well, he's always been a grumpy horse, or he's always found getting into canter on the right rein more difficult, or he's always been a spooky horse. And I knew that by observing many, many horses, if I did nerve blocks in order to take away their pain temporarily, then their behavior would immediately improve, which proved to me that these behaviors were pain induced. And then um, probably about uh, six, seven years ago, several things came to a head. Uh, firstly, I had submitted a paper to a scientific journal about a syndrome which I call idiopathic hopping type lameness in ridden horses, which is an odd type of lameness which you only see in the ridden horse. Um, it is often altered by neck position, and we believe it is related to nerve root pain associated with the caudal aspect of the neck. But these horses don't respond to conventional painkilling drugs, and they don't respond to nerve blocks. And yet I still feel that it's pain related because these horses can be going completely normally and they suddenly start to slow down and hop and their facial expressions change. And the reviewers of this paper, because every paper that you submit to a scientific journal has to be peer reviewed by at least two other people, would not accept that this was pain related. And I couldn't understand why they had that philosophy, because to me it was so obvious. Uh, and I'd showed photographs of these horses. It was so obvious that they were uncomfortable. And then at the same time, I was involved with a high-profile event horse, which was a subject of a major insurance claim for permanent incapacity for five-star level eventing, or it was four-star at that time. And the veterinary surgeon advising the insurance company kept insisting that we did more treatments and for me the horse was getting worse and I couldn't understand that this veterinary surgeon who was a high profile person couldn't understand that this horse was experiencing considerable discomfort and this really disturbed me and then I was becoming really fed up with um, seeing so many horses that had been wrong for so long before they were brought for veterinary investigation with me when other vets had said, there's nothing wrong with your horse, it's behavioral, just kick it harder, work it through it. And I found all of this unacceptable. And I thought the only way to address this is to be able to prove that these behaviors are pain related. So then we started down a journey of developing what is called an ethogram. And an ethogram is a series of behaviors which have strict definitions. For example, the mouth being open with separation of the teeth for 10 seconds or more. So we developed what we call the ridden horse pain ethogram uh, by comparing non-lame horses with lame horses. And we started off with 117 different behaviors, which was obviously far too many. Uh, but by comparison of lame horses and non-lame horses, we were able to define 24 behaviors, the majority of which were at least 10 times more likely to be seen in a horse which was lame compared with a non-lame horse. Uh, so this was the development of the ridden horse pain ethogram. And then we compared horses before, and, and we demonstrated also that the display of eight or more of these 24 behaviors was highly likely to be associated with musculoskeletal pain. Most non-lame horses scored zero to three or four, um, with an average of two, whereas most lame horses score eight or more. Um, a few lame horses score less than eight, um, but the majority score eight or more. 
And we've then done numerous other studies which have validated this ethogram and shown that eight or more behaviours is likely to reflect musculoskeletal pain. Now, I was fortunate as one of those serendipitous events at the start of this journey to meet on a ski lift in the United States a lady who was a veterinarian, a rider, and a behavioural expert. So she was involved in the initial, with me in the initial development, which was extraordinarily helpful because, because she was board certified in veterinary behavior in the United States. She brought, um, uh, what's the right word, um, power to this uh, investigation because she was accepted in the behavior world. Um, I'm not a behaviorist. I'm an orthopedic person. But the collaboration with Janine Berger uh, meant that the work was accepted amongst the behavior people, which I think was hugely important. Uh, and now our goal is to educate the world because we think this is a very powerful tool. Yeah, um, I, I agree. It's a, it's a topic of conversation for us at the moment, to, but to actually have a tool to be able to um, prove what it is that we're trying to say a lot is amazing. Yes, I, I think it is. And uh, as an example of how powerful a tool I think it is, we have recently done a study when we observed horses warming up for the dressage phase at five-star three-day events. And we determined whether or not they were sound or non or, or slightly lame or had gait abnormalities in canter and applied the ridden horse pain ethogram. And we determined that horses that scored seven or more of the 24 behaviors got worse dressage marks, were more likely to be eliminated or retire on cross country, and had lower finish places than horses that scored less than seven. Wow. Uh, I think that this shows what a powerful tool this ethogram can be in terms of prediction of performance at that level. Yeah, absolutely. What an amazing tool. Now, my question is, what keeps going through my mind, why did the pain relief drugs and nerve blocks not work for these horses, do you believe? This was referring specifically to the hopping horse syndrome. And there are different types of pain. You've got pain involved potentially in different locations. So you can have pain involved with a joint, pain involved with soft tissues such as ligaments or tendons. Uh, you can have pain associated with the lamina in the foot, or you can have what we call neuropathic pain, pain associated with nerves. And pain associated with nerves in both people and in horses is notoriously difficult to control. And we believe that this is probably neuropathic pain, which causes this sporadic hopping type lameness in ridden horses. Mm -hmm. So pain is frequently not influenced by either um, pain-killing drugs that you give to the horse either by mouth or by injection, uh, and also not altered by nerve blocks. In fact, paradoxically, the lameness can actually get worse with nerve blocks because mm -hmm. you're changing neural feedback pathways. So it's a fascinating subject. Pain is not a simple issue. It's a, a multifactorial thing that we don't fully understand, I think. And it, I think it's the hardest thing of owning a horse is you know they're in pain, you just don't know where. And, um, and you can spend an, an awful lot of time um, searching for where the pain is. And, um, and it's, it can be a deep dive and you, you, sometimes it takes a very long time and a lot of different people to get to the answer. Yeah, I, I think that if you feel that your horse has got a problem, then you need to be working with a veterinarian who is uh, used to watching ridden horses, who is experienced with the discipline within which that horse is working and who is prepared to do nerve blocks. Because I think that is the only way you identify in the majority of horses from where the pain is coming from. You cannot tell purely by observation of the movement where the pain may be coming from. You have to do nerve blocks. So for me, the principle of any poor performance or lameness investigation is first of all, you have to determine the source of pain and that you do by nerve blocks. Then you 
diagnostic imaging, like x-rays or ultrasonography, to determine what is the cause of the pain, and there may be more than one location of pain, and only then, having determined both the sources of pain and the causes of pain, can you then start to develop a treatment protocol or a management protocol. And I think that it is the failure to do a comprehensive whole horse evaluation and the failure to do nerve block techniques uh, that results in the overuse of, for example, bone scanning to fish for a cause of a problem, which is not very valuable, and also results in lots of useless treatments being carried out because you haven't identified what you're trying to manage. Mm. So it's fundamental for me that you have to identify the sources of pain using nerve blocks before you can progress any further. And it's also, you know, we, we have a bit of a laugh and a cry as horse people about the cost of vets and it would be so much more cost effective for us as horse owners to understand this too. So um, I don't know that I have many vets listening to the podcast, but hopefully we'll get it out to some. But it's for us as horse owners just to know that could save us so much money when a vet comes around. We can actually say, right, I would like the this done first and this is why and this is the course of action I'd like you to take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, since we have promoted the ridden horse pain ethogram, so many people have come to me and said, by using this, I've persuaded my vet that they must investigate further, they must do nerve blocks. And the vets themselves have been astonished by the, the changes that they have observed in the horses. So it is a huge um, goal to try and educate veterinarians. It's an uphill struggle. Um, we're just starting, I think. But I think another point that I have to make is that obviously by me saying I need to see the horse ridden, I'm actually complicating the issue to some extent because I'm bringing into the equation the tack and the rider as well. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of horses, unfortunately, with ill-fitting saddles that can contribute to pain. And we also have riders who are perhaps not properly in balance. They're not sitting correctly. Um, they have the wrong posture in the saddle. They're sitting too far back in the saddle because the saddle doesn't fit them. Um, and those problems compound the overall picture. So when we're seeing a ridden horse, for me, I'm not only to assess the horse, I have to assess the fit of the saddle to both the rider and the horse. And I have to, if necessary, uh, change the saddle. If I feel the saddle is an ill-fitting saddle, I need to change the saddle to a better-fitting saddle and then reevaluate the horse. Likewise, if I feel that the rider may be contributing to the problem, then I have to tactfully address this and perhaps see a different rider ride the horse to see how that influences the overall situation. And as I've said before, sometimes I ride the horses myself so I can understand how the horse feels. So it's not an easy situation. And I think that the veterinary profession have not been educated to look at the horse as a whole, and they've not been educated to look at the horse tack rider interaction. So that's a whole different, more sophisticated level of investigation but the horse owner needs that i agree completely it's um it's music to my ears what you were saying and i was going to say that the the this is where the veterinary um you know vets especially in australia you know they they hold an incredible amount incredible amount of power and respect but they don't have those extra elements they, I, I don't know many vets at all. I don't actually know a vet that would be a, a saddle fitter um, or a biomechanics rider person who, who would be able to watch the biomechanics of the rider and, um, and tag. I, and I think it's like though an awareness that these factors may be influential. I mean, I'm not a saddle fitter, but I can assess whether or not the saddle fits the horse. Yeah. The saddle fits the rider. And I is that because of your horse experience or is that something that you know from your veterinary studies um i've set myself about to learn more about it um yeah. because i recognized that 
the saddle could be influential. And I've put different saddles on different horses and seen how immediately their gait and behavior has changed. So I realized it was something that was a necessary part of my armamentarium. As, as an equine vet, I had to know more about this. Mm. Uh, the rider, I've always cared passionately about my position. Um, I was well taught from the outset um, and have always, I think, had fairly good body c- control. And I've also um, u- used to teach at the pony club and did some other teaching and then realized if I was going to have m- more coaching for myself, I needed some extra money. So I too took the British Horse Society um, uh, training examinations in order that I could uh, charge more for my lessons so I could then afford to have lessons from other people. So having trained as a teacher of riding, I am very aware of rider position and the effect that riders can have on the horse. And I have observed many times watching other people have lessons that frequently there's use more right rein, use more right leg without addressing the rider's position, mm-hmm. symmetry of the rider, um, whether or not the rider's in balance. And that concerns me that not enough attention is paid to rider position, their balance, their core strengths, because all of those factors, I think, are hugely influential over the way in which the horse can move. And if you look at some of the greatest riders in the world, they have fabulous positions and are very well well in balance. But you go down the levels a bit and you then see some pretty horrendous pictures. Yes, you do. And um, yeah, you're backing up, which is kind of my point, which is you've done these things as a part of your life and that you've seen it and you've, you've learned how to ask the right questions and head down the right way. And I wonder now, how you can influence those who are the universities who are teaching veterinarian studies for horses to say this, this, this has to be a part of the training. Well, I think it's very difficult to make it part of undergraduate training because undergraduate training is so comprehensive across species. Mm. And although some later specialization is allowed in many places now, in the final year, still there is too much of the basics that need to be learned uh, at the university level. So I think this teaching probably has to be done after graduation, although I would like to see more basic tre- um, training about behavior in the undergraduate program. And in fact, I recently recorded um, a lecture for undergraduates at the University of Cambridge uh, as part of the final year course for the for the equine interested people, just on ridden horse behaviour. But I think we have to think that vets, whilst they are so called qualified at the time of graduation, are actually not qualified to go out and do the job as uh, as the equine public needs. They need further postgraduate training. Um, I was very fortunate. I went to the United States. I had some fabulous training and there are now many more internship programs and residency programs to facilitate the training of younger people. I've been fortunate enough to run an internship program for probably 25 years and educated two people per year and it's just been amazing to me how much they develop over the period of a year. Uh, they, they arrive and they're not really ready to be equine veterinarians. They're not fully developed when they leave me as fledglings and go and fly out into the world, but at least they've got a good start, a good foundation. Uh, so I think we must always work from the premise that a veterinary graduate is um, qualified, but they need to think that they're going to be on a continual learning journey, hopefully throughout their careers. 
because I would say there are very few weeks that I've worked when I hadn't thought, wow, I hadn't seen that before. Or sometimes you've joined up the dots and you're developing a picture. And that's what's been so exciting for me during my career is that I really feel that I've continued to learn by continued observation and putting different threads together to create pictures. Very exciting. Very exciting. I um, oh, gee, I wish you lived in Australia. <laughs> we need, we need, we so need this expertise over here. We're we're um, we're crying out for it, but um, but in in good time, all in good time. So tell me more about what it is that you've created, how we can access it, and how we utilize it. So we've developed the ridden horse pain ethogram, which I've described to you. We've developed a training course in association with an American charity called Equitopia. And so via the Equitopia website, you can find this 12-stage training course with interactive quizzes, which I think teaches the fundamentals. Uh, There are also a variety of different publications which describe the work and anybody who's interested can also contact me directly to find out more about it. Uh, I talked to the Australian Veterinary Association earlier this year about it and they produced um, online um, uh, those lectures which were available to the veterinary profession. But I think it's going to be a a, a big job to try to disseminate this information as widely as possible. And and I have to be reliant on people sharing by word of mouth um, their experiences of the use of it. I think... um... I think sometimes word of mouth is one of the best ways to get everything around as well because when it's coming with the personal recommendation, it's when it really takes off. Absolutely. Um, Now, I'm continuing within the UK to try and disseminate the knowledge further. Um, I'm going to have the opportunity to present this information to the equine veterinary profession Um, We're developing links with the British Horse Society. Um, The Equitopia training course is actually being translated into 15 different languages. Uh, So it's currently available in Russia, for example, and it's being uh, translated into Spanish and Italian and Polish and many other languages as well. So that's exciting because that shows that there are various people around the world who have realize the power of this tool and share my enthusiasm to try and disseminate the knowledge. Mm, yeah, it's, um, it needs to go far and wide. And it's quite reasonable as well. It's the how to recognize the 24 behaviors indicating pain in the ridden horse. Is that the course? That's, that's the course, yeah. Yeah, so that's $135. That's US dollars, I think. Yes, I think it's US dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you look at that, that's as much as a vet visit. Oh, so absolutely. By the, um, I mean, it's, I very think it's, I think it's very, very good value for money. Very good value for money. Some absolutely. people, I think, are put off by having to pay for it. But then I think to myself, well, they go out and buy a new rug for their horse. Um, they buy a new saddle for their horse. If they just learnt about behaviour, they probably wouldn't need to do these things. Yes, and. As I was saying before, as uh, as horse owners, we we laugh and cry at the um, at the cost of vet visits and the amount of pathology we pay for and things like that to make sure things are okay, just to figure out what's going on. So really, one hundred and thirty five dollars, even when it's uh, even when it's translated to Australian dollars, it's uh, it's still very very reasonable. It is it is less than it would cost for all the pathologies and everything to happen to try and figure out where the pain is in your horse. Yeah, but I think it's also, we have to put this into perspective that um, whilst I think I have become much better over the years at diagnosing, that doesn't mean that we can successfully manage everything. Yes. Um, 
so we have to think about what are the athletic expectations for each individual horse and when we've got the management plan which is not going to be my treatment because I'm going to work as a member of a team with for example physiotherapists or a chiropractor um, and, and other paraprofessionals we still are not necessarily going to be able to successfully manage every horse but the sooner you recognize that there is a problem the more likely we are to be able to successfully manage the problem. The longer a problem has been present, the more likely there is to be secondary problems, for example, muscle wastage, mm -hmm. and then makes the whole horse more difficult to manage successfully in the longer term. So the sooner we recognize a problem, the sooner we get a, an accurate diagnosis, the more likely we are to be able to successfully manage that individual. But there are going to be some horses which have multiple problems and we are not going to be able to fix all those problems. Because when we're asking a horse to be an athlete, it's different to you as a human being. Um, most of us are not ourselves athletes. Treating an upper level human athlete is a very different thing than treating somebody who has a sedentary job, for example. And the same applies to our horses. We are asking them to be athletes, moreover, athletes that carry us. So it's a, a much more challenging situation in many respects. Yes, in, in almost every way. Which is why it's so important that we also address the tack and the rider's position, because it's quite amazing the difference that correctly fitted tack for both the horse and the rider and the correct position and balance of the rider, how big an influence those features can make on the horse's overall well-being. Mm, absolutely. And it's, and it's fitting, yeah, the tack to both. So it's fitting the saddle to the horse and to the rider as well. Absolutely, yes. Because if the saddle doesn't fit the rider, it makes it much more difficult for them to maintain their balance and... Um, coordination with the horse so we have to make everything work mm, yeah there's so many things that are involved and um, there's so many on a, of us that just have one saddle and we throw it on you know any any horse we're riding and we've really just got to educate ourselves and open ourselves up to say if we do that um, we may very well be compromising our horse and, and causing more problems or the horse we're, we're throwing it to and from and and in all different yeah. uh, in respect yeah, I, I so. think people people don't really realize the significance of saddle fits because if the saddle doesn't fit the horse properly, then the horse is going to adapt the movement of its back and it's going to move its back less. And as a consequence of that, it won't be using the back muscles normally. So the back muscles will start to waste away, which has a very negative impact on the entire movement of the horse. Uh, and I think it's fundamentally important to realize that if, for example, you've got an ill-fitting saddle and you change it to a better-fitting saddle, within two months, we can see increased dimensions of the back because of improved muscle development. Uh, so it is incredibly important to recognize the importance of saddle fit and to have the saddle fit checked on a regular basis. How regular? Um, uh, particularly in a young horse, which is developing its top line musculature, I would say at the absolute maximum every six months, but ideally every three months, if we're starting with a four or five-year-old. Mm. Um, sure horse, like an eight-year-old medium-level dressage horse, for example, then it is less important to do it every three to four months. But still, the horse is going to change in its shape according to its dietary intake, which will be influenced by the season. And it's also going to be altered by the pattern of work that it's doing and if it has any unforeseen time off for an unrelated reason. So I would personally say at least every six months for every horse, but for the younger horses, ideally every three to four months. Fantastic. Costly, 
uh, and it's dependent also on having a good saddle fitter to work with, uh, I believe that it is money well spent. I agree because it's prevention. It's, you know, there's, there's two ways of thinking. You either deal with injury, illness, pain once it's happened, or you pay to keep your horse well and prevent it and have a long and happy life and, and less stress for life. So I know where I'd rather spend the money. Yes, I mean, you used the word happy, and I think that that is fundamentally very important. We should be striving towards happy athletes. And I'm, I'm not saying that you can't ride horses which have low-grade lameness. Of, of course you can. Um, lots of us cope with low-grade aches and pains, and we get on, and we're, and we're not unhappy doing that. But I think it is important that we identify which horses are coping adequately with their underlying problems, and we try and manage those problems to the best that we can, uh, but also recognise those in which we cannot improve them sufficiently to be happy horses. And it's making that differentiation, which I think is important. But I strongly believe that there are many horses with low-grade lameness that can be managed appropriately, assuming that, for example, they're not doing the same repetitive things day after day after day, and that they have uh, a mixture of their work program. They spend some time hacking out. They spend some time doing flat work. They spend some time doing gymnastic jumping, and they have plenty of turnout, so they're moving around all the time um, so that they're living in as natural a way as possible. Definitely. Yes, all of them. All of them are so important. And um, there are some beautiful people now that are actually doing um, dressage for rehabilitation. And so, you know, when your horse is in pain, it doesn't mean, no, you can't ride. There are times where you can't ride and there are times where your horse needs a break. And there are also times where your horse under saddle doing the right things can actually be of massive benefit to them. Oh, absolutely. But you have to have the right rider on them. So if the rider is sitting on the back of the saddle out of balance, um, that is not going to help a horse with some underlying problems. And in that situation, I would say I would encourage the, the owner to do more work from the ground while they themselves had ideally some lessons on a school horse or on a mechanical horse in order to improve their position and their score to score. Um, uh, core stability uh, so that they could ride more in balance and more effectively absolutely but we can achieve quite a lot with groundwork um, poles on the ground raised poles um, working for example in a Pessoa training aid or other similar things like an equiami or a bungee uh, there, there is a lot we can achieve from the ground as well as from on top mm. but ultimately we have to have the horses ridden, obviously, because that's why we have horses. We ride them. Yeah, some of some of them. Some people enjoy them without riding, but yeah, the, the point is, pain doesn't have to stop the ridden horse. You know, sometimes it will, but we need to understand everything that you've talked about in the last hour. We need to understand everything that you're saying to be able to move forward. Yes, so yeah. that means holistically looking at the whole horse all the time. With our eyes open and thinking and observing and uh, questioning the status quo, Um, bearing in mind that good horses, the successful performance horses are happy horses and that's what we should be trying to achieve for all of our riding horses. Most definitely. So where to from here for you, Sue? Um, well, I still feel I've got a lot to do. I still get my biggest buzz by looking at clients' horses and trying to help them. But I also want to try to expand on the work that we've been doing so far with the Ridden Horse Pain Ethogram and enhance people's knowledge of the work, which is uh, a big task. Uh, and I continue to look at horses 
every day and continue to document my observations and continue to learn by looking and listening at the horses and listening to the clients as well. I spend a lot of time listening to what people have to say to me because I think as vets, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to what the owners are saying. Um, too many vets are in a bit of a hurry. Um, and I think get a little bit overwhelmed by what they see as fussy owners. But I've learnt over the years that these fussy owners often have got things to tell us which are of huge value. So for me, looking listening, observing, thinking, and keeping an open mind are all very important because I think I can continue to make new observations which are going to be a benefit to the horse ultimately. Most definitely. I, I don't think you're done yet either. Not even close. So it, the equitopiacenter.com is one way that people can um, find the, the course. Where else can we connect with you? Um, you can connect via my email, which is sue.dyson at aol.com. That's the simplest way. Wonderful. And I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to send you an email if they have any questions. But for now, Sue, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Um, but more so, I think there's a whole bunch of horses out there cheering on the work that you're doing. And I'm so glad, um, as I've said a few times, that you are bringing a course and science to back what it is that we as horse owners have felt for a long time. So thank you so much for what it is you've given to the horse world and what you're doing. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my experiences with a few more people um i feel it's a very great privilege thank mm. you is there anything else that we need to know before you go no i i, I don't think so probably i never imagined my career going in this way i never thought that i would have had the opportunity to meet so many professional colleagues around the world and have them as friends and i think that i've been incredibly fortunate throughout my career to have had the opportunity to learn from so many different people and, and not just veterinarians from horse people too um, and I think I've been fortunate to have kept an open mind and keep wanting to suck in more information and filter it and then use the useful bits to help me and uh, I've also had the opportunity to teach a lot of young people and that has been wonderful to see how they can also develop. And that whole ethos of mentoring, I think, is a very important process. Well, it's how you got to where you were and, um, and you've done such extraordinary things. So, you know, being able to give back in that way is very special as well. Yes. Um, as I've said, I think I've been in a privileged situation um, and I'm a lucky person. Life has happened in a very fortuitous and serendipitous way, but at the same time, you have to take advantage of what comes to you. And you have to do the work. Yes, oh, doubt, no doubt about that. Yeah. My days are very, very long days. Yeah, I imagine. Like people, many people could have been handed the same path, but if they weren't willing to do the work, they wouldn't have done what you've done. So full, um, full credit to everything you've been able to achieve. And I have a very tolerant husband too. He's not really a person, but he's been very supportive of what I do. That is and very helpful. Definitely very helpful. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Sue. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to spread the word on the amazing work you're doing. Thank you very much. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. 
If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.